I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Django. Well, Casey, I I guess I no longer have to ask what Quentin Tarantino's favorite movie is. <laughs> dun, dun. So, of course, this month we are talking about the notoriously violent spaghetti western from the year 1966, Django, directed by Sergio Corbucci, director of Navajo Joe, The Great Silence, The Specialists, Shoot First, Ask Questions Later, The Hellbenders, and many, many more. Uh, from a screenplay written by Corbucci himself and his brother Bruno Corbucci with contributions from Franco Rossetti, Jose Gutierrez Maeso, and Piero Vivarelli, all of whom wrote dozens of Italian movies and spaghetti westerns oh, no doubt. with titles I don't understand because <laughs> I don't speak Italian, but my God, these posters are awesome. <laughs> and uh, joining us for this conversation in the studio, a returning guest, camp director and president of Camp Quest Northwest, and spaghetti western expert, Mr. Michael Warbington. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. It was good to be here. Um, I would say spaghetti western enthusiast. I'm not quite at an expert level yet. I don't <laughs> want to make any claims. But... I just try, try to figure out what the, the echelons are. He's a spaghetti like... western journeyman, I think is what he is. Where does aficionado <laughs> fit into that category? I've watched a bunch of them and listened to a bunch of commentaries, but I haven't done the you know first-hand research to you have interviews yeah spaghetti western super saiyan I, yeah. I read the books i don't write the books okay. <laughs> you're the only person that i know that not only has spaghetti western posters on your wall but also has spaghetti western themed remix posters from like star wars and star trek on your wall so you must like spaghetti westerns yeah i've got yeah. a soft spot yes. for sure. <laughs> before we get into our, our first question i guess that just leads us to the the question that precedes the question, like, what is a spaghetti Western? What is it yeah. that makes a spaghetti Western? What is it about this subgenre? Um, what is it, Mike? So, um, I, I, again, I'm not an expert. So, so you know, forgive me if I don't nail every last detail. But a spaghetti Western is a Western um, made um, with an Italian crew or with the involvement of Italian crew and director and cast. Um, often made in Spain, um, often a co-production between France and Spain and Italy or Ger and or Germany, with typically an assortment of um, actors from those countries and from throughout Europe and um, from other non-English speaking countries, and often with a, like an aging or up and coming American star in the lead role to get some foreign box office. But it's an, an Italian Western, effectively. Um, made generally between like 1964 and 1975, thereabouts. They kind of trailed off after the early 70s. Um, they made hundreds of them. They were super popular, particularly in it in Italy, where people would go see you know multiple movies a night, and this was kind of the consumable form of entertainment. And these were popular, and so they just cranked them out. And so they're of varying degrees of quality, and some of them are classics, and they're great, like the one we're going to talk about today. Some of them are just absolute trash, and then everything in between. 
So let's get into the one that we're talking about today. We're talking Django. Um, if you had to sum up what this movie was about in a paragraph or two, what is Django all about? I think that um, you could describe the plot of Django, but that's not really what the movie is about. The The movie is more about the um, kind of the tone, the level of violence, and the sort of like um, prototypical action hero character that Django embodies. The, the general plot of the story is that you have this mysterious stranger who shows up to a Western town and kind of plays two sides off of one another, sort of sort of like the plot of A Fistful of Dollars or Yojimbo. Yojimbo. Um, Both of these movies are derivative of Yojimbo to various degrees. Um, And also kind of uh, a fairly standard plot structure in Westerns. And so he encounters the the racist landowners, the Ku Klux Klan members, and the the, former Confederate uh, major who you know who leads them and uh, kills them all off and then makes friends with the the Mexican bandits and helps them steal the major's gold from the Mexican army and then betrays the Mexican bandits and tries to make off with the gold and then he's captured by the Me- by the bandits and um, beaten to a pulp and then um, the bandits are killed off by the the, uh, the 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 Mexican army and then the general comes to seek his revenge and you know, Django on his you know last stand you know it, it you know emerges victorious and not terribly complicated really it's um and but I think the fantastic part about it is that it's um I mean you just p- pointed it it's sort of like an A B A B and then the thing the sort of things over I think the thing that is, was astounding to me because I watched it not too many months ago and then I watched it twice over the last few days and I think it's because I've never seen a movie that is so deliberately uh put into a three third act structure where so- something that happens on the end of all three of those acts just is like okay this is going to happen here then this is going to happen here and then it's the end yeah and that thing it's, that happens at that is always a bloodbath yeah it's and it's they're all incredible they're yes. all incredible yes yeah. It's exceptionally well well paced and deliberately yeah. sort of like feeding the audience uh, a a bite of a big bite of action at every every ten or fifteen minute interval. Well, the thing is, if you watch enough sort of if you watch enough sort of genre cinema, if you watch enough Italian stuff, I mean, I've watched enough Italian horror and giallo um, to know that like sometimes there's a lot of like well, there's just a lot of unnecessary shit and. Um, you could say that about parts of Django, but really what you were saying is, no, I think he's, he's adding, uh, Corbucci is adding a kind of an atmosphere around this that then you can excuse the fact that there are like very long sequences like him sneaking the coffin out of the, the like where you're like, okay, this could be they're padding for time, but also it is interesting that they're choosing to show this whole thing. They're building know? tension. Yeah. And I think that's what I, I enjoy. I can see all of the ways that this movie inspired Quentin Tarantino and a lot of other filmmakers, Robert Rodriguez and others, um, because it's all about that building of tension. And then when that tension explodes, it explodes big. And it's what keeps this moving, movie moving along at such a clip because um, approximately every 20 to 30 minutes, everything blows up and a bunch of people die. Um <laughs> And it never, to me, even in the moment where he's moving the coffin around, because he's sneaking the coffin around, because he's about to to rob uh, Ugo, uh, General Ugo, the uh, the kind of a warlord. I guess they 
are ostensibly revolutionaries, but these guys are never going to run Mexico. They are a gang that has the, I guess you could say, self-applied credibility of a military title, but they're really no different than like the Raiders in a Fallout game or like a Mad Max gang. They're bandits with delusions of grandeur. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. These guys are never going to be in charge of anything. So uh, when they promise, oh, don't worry, Django, you'll get your half of the money when I rule Mexico. <laughs> Django realizes that too. And he knows... I'm either going to steal my money or I'm never going to see my money. So that scene of him moving the coffin around through that party that's happening um, does have a nice bit of tension to it. And you get to see it's like uh, cleaning out the mall in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. 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 Which is that you show all the steps of it. And I think it makes it more tense rather than boring. And I didn't think there's any parts of this movie that feel boring. Yeah. And a lot of movies in this kind of grindhouse subgenre are oftentimes a mixed bag where there's moments that are absolutely awesome, kind of punctuating a lot of boring stuff that doesn't hold up as well, where I think the slow stuff in Django holds up better than most of these, where it crosses the line from just being, like a fun, pulpy revenge story to being legitimately good. Yeah. I think a lot of these movies have the structure where they open on some sort of scene of violence or or action scene, and then you spend an hour and a half um, following characters going from point A to point B to point C, having various interactions, very little action or anything that's particularly compelling, leading you up to a final showdown that might be really well done and superb, and almost just worth watching on its own because the whole rest of the movie doesn't really justify its existence other than to bring you to this big grand finale. Exactly. And Django has that sort of build up and then release of tension every 10 or 15 minutes. And it's, um, it moves along at such a good clip, um, that, um, I don't know if we want to talk about spoilers. Sure. Go Um, for it. Yeah. But, um, I'm, you know, it's, it's it's been out for more than two weeks. It's a movie from 1966. (laughs) If you haven't seen it yet, pause now and go watch it. But, um, uh, he, he, he walks into the frame dragging this coffin. And so kind of the immediate question is what's in this coffin. And he's asked that and he gives a couple of different answers. You know, the name, the, the, is there someone in that coffin? He says, yes, there's, their name is Django. Um, and then when it's finally revealed what's in the coffin is he breaks out a giant machine gun that sort of has an unlimited amount of ammo. Yeah, it's, it is like a Rockstar game where it's like, hey, you get a machine gun and it, you don't have to worry about ammo. And then it's very, it's very much like a Rockstar game because he just you know, blows down, you know, mows down everybody in the street. And um, when I was watching it a couple of nights ago and I'm like, that they really gave that away in like the first 15 minutes of the movie. And then I actually looked at this timestamp and that was halfway through the movie. We, you know, the movie already kind of moved along so quickly that I was like, I thought we were only 15 minutes in and here we are. Right. Normally that would be in a lot of lesser movies, there would have been a whole bunch of nothing or quiet moments. And if badly done tension, a lot of the time and the machine gun sequence would be the finale of the movie, Mm -hmm. but it happens on like minute 28. And then I'm like, holy shit, how do you top this? How do you top? They find a way to top it. Mm-hmm. But that's what I find so fascinating is he goes into town and you don't, one, you don't know what's in the box. So there's this tension and a question. It's well, a literal mystery box I, in the movie. I think what's important is that we're passing up that there's actually a, some part of it that I thought was really, which before where you introduced Maria, who was the half Mexican, half. 
Yankee. White. Half that's Yankee. What they, yes. That's how they like, call it. Yeah. A, a prostitute. And she's being, uh, she's tied up and being whipped by the Mexicans who are, and this is obviously how they're coding that they're bad guys when you've got like the lackeys standing around like laughing and smiling at someone else's pain. And you're like, okay, well, these guys are going to yeah. get fucked up. And so Django crests a hill and sees this happening. And you're like, okay, well, we, we're we also coded to know Django is the good guy. So he's going to stop it. Um, and then you hear, and all the Mexicans fall down. And then you cut to a shot of this, the uh, the Major Jackson's men, these guys who don't understand yet. They have army uniforms on and they have red sashes. Mm-hmm. Um, they cut the Mexican da- Mexicans down. And they're like, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. They're the heroes. They come up. They obviously know who she is. And then they're going to burn her to death on a cross. They're going to crucify her yeah. on a burning cross. Yes. And, you, and you realize, wait, one of these guys is wearing a fucking hood. <laughs> and you realize she has been... And in scare quotes, rescued by the fucking Ku Klux Klan, who, because she's been consorting with Mexicans, are now going to burn her to death. And that's the time when you were just like, well, I expected Django to to, take to take them out. And then Django just takes out all of the all of the Major Jackson's guys. And then the rest of the story starts. But I love that there is the thing where you're just like, oh, I know what the hero's going to do here. That's not what happens. But you also know that he's going to fuck everyone up by the end of the movie based on that initial scene. Well, he lets he lets his enemies take each other out before he intervenes (laughs) it's kind of crazy because that i spent a lot of this movie trying to gauge Django's morality that he clearly has a code that he says he's coming into town on a personal matter and there's a lot of question on how much danger he's willing to put other people in to accomplish a personal goal and what's so crazy about it is that for the first half of this this movie He's at war with the KKK. And you know what? I'm fucking fine with that. <laughs> you can kill as many of those guys as you want. Um, it's a free, it's like the free space on a board game as so, far but, as but like define, my movie thing goes. Let's define what they are though, because this what is sort of interesting is they wear red sashes and red hoods, which I thought was an interesting kind of fusion because if you've ever seen like the Wyatt Earp stuff, the cowboys wear red bandanas, and so mm-hmm. that's the, that's how you know they're like, oh, anyone who's showing colors, right? These are bloods. Anyone who's showing colors are there. But then they also have guys with hoods with eye holes cut out, and you're like, well, okay, now we know I exactly think, what you are. I think that's um, a kind of a byproduct of it being an Italian Western hmm. and not an American-made Western, and it's, it's blending those elements into something that's sort of new. So it's yeah. taking those elements of the red sashes and the white hoods and, make, and putting – putting the villains in red hoods and uh, you know drawing from both of those senses of you know the aesthetic senses to create sort of a unique and uh new villain right but it doesn't take long for you to realize because they basically just say oh well we are members of this uh, the south uh, you know the uh, confederate army that are still fighting the war basically he's fighting his own private war yeah but I mean, he's he's essentially these are Confederate dead enders. Their way of life is over, except as this kind of vigilante gang action. That again, we have another leader using a, a military title to give it some air of legitimacy. But really, he's just a warlord too. That I mean, for all his you know the usual white supremacist bullshit about oh I'm protecting the townsfolk from Mexicans, he's extorting the townsfolk. Oh, that he's getting them to pay him protection. They basically eliminated the entire town. Yeah, the the town town is gone. Does not exist because of what they've been doing. Well, it's a ghost town, as far as I can tell. Nathaniel and the the various sex workers are the only people in town. There's a there's a muddy street that goes through the center of this town. 
uh, buildings on both sides. But as far as I can tell, people only go in and out of one of these buildings, except for that barn that they keep uh, the gold in later in the movie. <laughs> there is there is nothing there. Everyone else, before this movie began, said, fuck this shit, I'm out of here. Like, the idea of that there's a war between this like Mexican bandit and the clan. It's like, it's like a proto clan. I think I looked this up. There actually was a white supremacist racist gang of Confederate dead enders called weirdly enough, the red shirts um, no. after, after the civil war. And in this movie, we get to see these guys embody both definitions of red shirts um, <laughs> to my great delight. But, these guys um, are ex- both, I think both uh, General Ugo and Major Jackson are extorting money out of the exact same um, saloon owner. The only guy that's left. This guy has seen some shit in his time. Nathaniel, the the guy there, has really made his, his life and saved his own life probably countless times by staring at his shoes, not raising his voice, not telling these guys to not brutalize him and, and the people that work at his saloon. And just Django drags a coffin into town and fucks all of that up. Um, and it's hard to tell how much he actually gives a shit about Nathaniel's safety, the safety of the girls. It's hard to tell because for the first half of the movie, like I mentioned, he's fighting the clan. And it's like, okay, unambiguous good guy. This guy can pull out this massive maxim gun that he's holding in both hands and in the course of 43 seconds and i looked this up he kills 37 people (laughs) he litters the street with corpses and all of these guys and this is what i kind of love about the bright red is that this is the one clean fabric in the entire movie is this bright wine red it's like the kind of red that picard's uniform is and you just see all of these guys just get gunned down in I'm just going to call it like an avalanche of bullets that are coming their way as they drop one by one into the mud. And he just litters the the street with these guys. I mean, this is, it is implied Nathaniel had to bury all of them later. <laughs> um, that's insane. I mean, this is enough guys that you should just really burn them. Um, but it is, it is insane how many people are killed in this movie. And I just want to say, is this the most violent movie we have ever covered on this show? Because I think it is. Ooh, it might be. I mean, we haven't done Commando yet, obviously, so that will be the that'll be the high water mark. I have to say something when you were talking about the idea of uh, being in the mud. Um, you know how normally when you watch an American Western, especially an American Western of this era, and if they want to show someone who's been like, oh, a farmhand who's been working or someone who's been walking a long time, they'll have like a little bit of brown makeup smeared on their cheek or on their forehead to sort of be like, oh, well, they're a little dirty. Well, in this movie, everything is wet and fucking muddy and, like, disgusting. Like, when they they show, uh, you know, they ominously they show the coffin a few times, and it just looks like they've taken, like, cake batter that they haven't mixed all the way and just dumped it all over. Everyone's shoes are fi- and, like, pants are filthy. And when there's, especially in the end when... Uh, Django is hurt, like, it's, like, super disgusting makeup. It's, like, really gritty really over the top normally you don't see a movie that just is okay with being this dirty this movie is like 20 percent mud (laughs) it is it is a filthy movie and um it's it's a bloody movie um i actually looked this up this is the stuff that just kind of shocked me because i was like i tried to do a kill count of both the initial um machine gun scene in the main street of town with the kkk then I wanted to look at 
the assault on Fort Chiriba, and then, of course, the bloodbath at the end. And I lost count so fast. People die at such a quick rate in this that it is outright impossible to the degree that I actually had to look up a YouTube video called the Django Carnage Counter. <laughs> <laughs> and based on their numbers, that first machine gun death with the KKK alone in the middle of town is 37 deaths in 43 seconds. The Fort Shariba attack, 60 deaths. In their final count at the end of this movie, this is a 90-minute movie, 147 people are killed over the course of this movie and two horses. <laughs> um, so in a 91-minute runtime, that's 1.62 deaths per minute. <laughs> that, this machi- is... that machine doesn't gun does a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Never reloaded. In, it's just like it's attached to... A chamber that pulls bullets from the bullet dimension. <laughs> well, there's a single, there's a, there's a single, um, you know, clip of bullets that are fed halfway through the machine gun, but the bullets and casings are intact on either side, and it never moves. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just set up so that it can show that there's bullets being fed in from either side, depending on the camera angle. You see the, you know, the 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 bullet, the belt. But it never moves and never, <laughs> never. I mean, I just think I love what, I, any of those what I like about it is that Django picks it up just like ter- the Terminator in Terminator 2 with the minigun. And he just, he just like starts firing from just, the hip. Yeah. He's just yeah, two hand in this thing, just like da 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 da. He doesn't need, it doesn't need to be affixed to a wagon. Normally, when you see a Western and they have a Gatling gun, it's like bolted to a wagon and they've got like a crank or whatever. Yes, this thing does work on some kind of magic power. You don't know how it is that it's able to get bullets and fire them and not be white hot because it just fires continuously. If he had been carrying the weight of all of the bullets that are fired from that gun in this movie, he would have not been able to move that coffin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would have been like the weight of like a Volkswagen. It would have been impossible. Uh, it's this movie is well. I th- I think this level of violence is one of the elements that sets spaghetti westerns. Just to broaden the scope a little bit, it gets sets spaghetti westerns apart from Hollywood westerns of this era. Um, is the degree of violence and how violent a lot of these movies were, and um, they were you know they're not made in America. They're not um governed by the was the the Hayes the code, Hayes code yeah. or um the various you know production code that limited that violent content in American films and partly explains um, the popularity of movies like this um, in America because it was something American audiences hadn't seen before. Um, This movie I don't think was particularly popular in America, but other Italian Westerns certainly were, the Leone films in particular. Um, And it also makes these movies like hugely hugely influential in how they impacted the violent content in movies of the 70s and 80s. And um, you can look at Sam Peckinpah in particular oh, as, yes. a, as, a, yep. as, a, as a director who was influenced by this. But it's pretty pretty far-reaching. And not I don't know that Spaghetti Westerns were solely responsible for that you know, kind of shift, but they were definitely a, a kind of a turning point or a, an indicator of that, that shift in... Um, violent content in movies i mean it it feels like an exploitation movie in that sense right it has it has the hallmarks of an exploitation movie it's transgressive yes because it is because it's transgressive but i mean also uh, there are things that uh i if they you know something that obviously inspired tarantino too because uh brother what is his name brother jonathan 
who's a guy who uh, is one of the racists, and he's kind of like his, his little stoolie who who is a messenger and he's apparently a, spy. a hate group has a chaplain. Yeah, he's yeah he's the he's the padre, and uh, when he gets when everyone else is going you down, surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, at all. I mean, I'm not. There's always going to be that guy who's holding the Bible, hiding behind both the authority of God and Major Jackson, <laughs> and he's like the most contemptible guy. Well, except- that's why he gets a death that no one else gets. The Mexicans catch him and cut off his ear with a knife and feed it to him, and then they shoot him in the back and he dies in the mud. And it was the weirdest thing, is I know this scene is probably designed to show me how awful Ugo is and the Mexican the Mexican bandits, but I'm like, on one level, I'm like, eh, fuck it, he's a Klansman. <laughs> I'm like, I, I was like, I probably didn't feel as bad about that scene as I should have, because, you know, especially Brother Jonathan himself is contemptible. He's kind of like the bespectacled guy in Road Warrior, yeah. Who shows up yeah. to threaten people on behalf of the Lord Humongous? I don't. I don't think you're supposed to feel bad for um, the the priest, um, particularly since the just a few scenes earlier he was like laughing and smiling when the Mexican peasants were being shot. Oh for my sport. god! Yes. Oh. Um, I, at that point, like you know the character, no matter what he does or what happens to him, he's irredeemable and deserves what he gets. Well, um, well, also when you know that when J- the, when Django first sees him, what does he do? He spits a cork in his face. That is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, what I love is that you know this guy has showed up to the saloon. Brother Jonathan collects the protection money that the saloon has to pay to Major Jackson, and of course he's kind of swaggering around with the kind of implied violence that his more powerful boss has. Oh, he has this sneer too. This sneer yeah. is ridiculous. I mean, he has that kind of crazy clergyman hat that. I don't think exists anymore, but it was in every Western movie. Uh, it's kind of, he has kind of the Amish beard and he has kind of the red sash hanging off of his arm and he always has the Bible under his hand. And it's just, he's moving around with this thought of my big brother's going to come and fuck you up. So you need to be scared of me because, and we all know if he didn't have that big brother, we could all kick this guy's ass. And that's what makes him so contemptible. Um, but when you do finally meet Major Jackson, what is he doing? It's like you mentioned, he has a bunch of Mexican prisoners that they're basically using for like live action racist skeet shooting where you let the prisoner run and you let him get a little bit of distance and kill them with a rifle. It's just so fucked up. And I actually wrote down in my notes, I can't wait for Django to kill these motherfuckers. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, to put a point on it, the last guy that they shoot, his two children are there. And so you're watching him be like, oh, well, he's they've, they've just decimated this family. And you're like, well, how many families have they done this to? You oh, know? God, so many. And yeah. it's the guy who does it is like, his name is Ringo. He's one of Major Jackson's goons. And he's particularly gross because that's the thing to understand about these kind of bad guys. We talked a little bit about it in our, our episode on vigilante fiction where – there's a kind of villain in these movies because these movies take place in a hard, harsh, um, like amoral, ugly, mean world. And your hero is just as mean and dangerous as the world is, but he's not cruel. He doesn't kill helpless people. He doesn't kill innocent people and he doesn't enjoy it. These bad guys enjoy it just like they do in like a death wish movie, just the way they do in a dirty, hairy movie where to them, it's like, it's not enough for them to brutalize and torture people and kill people and shoot them in the back, they have to kind of like catcall them at the same time. Like they're giggling and chortling. And this guy who shoots that that father whose children are holding over him crying is this like 
snaggletooth guy with a facial scar who's just guffawing as if murder is the funniest fucking thing in the world. <laughs> so I, I think that char- that character of Ringo um, makes me laugh a little bit because there was an earlier um, Italian Western movie. Oh, I'm forgetting the name of it. The one, there was a second one that was uh, The Return of Ringo. So Ringo, a character, was in a couple of previous movies played by an Italian actor, um, I think G- Giuliani Gemma, who had a small scar on his cheek but was an incredibly good-looking actor. <laughs> so they cast a Ringo in this movie with a giant scar across his cheek, big, ugly, nasty, fake teeth, and just the ugliest countenance you've seen on any character in, 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 <laughs> yeah. in, in a movie up until this point. And that was, you know, that, their version of Ringo is just, you know, it's this despicable character who doesn't even let the the um, the the peasants who he's get a get a lead. He just shoots them dead before they even get a chance to run. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't care about right, the game. in front of their children. So he's yeah. he's not even in it to play he for the gamesmanship of it as the as jackson is he's just all about cruelty and it sets that character up to be fairly quickly dispatched by (laughs) by Django shortly thereafter that's one of my favorite little bits is that Django doesn't give a shit he is he is not in a hurry in any way that he's sitting down in the saloon playing solitaire when these guys show up They've been, you know, they, he's been tattled on by brother Jonathan, who went to get his bigger brother. So Major Jackson shows up with his goons, including Ringo, and they're just threatening people. And of course, they want to start a start shit with with Django. Ringo tries to take a prostitute upstairs. She really doesn't want it. And that's where Django makes his first move, says she doesn't want to go upstairs with you. And, of course, Ringo does not like hearing that because he is exactly the kind of secondary bad guy who's really stupid and wants to escalate every situation. And this would have been a really good time to listen to The Quiet Stranger because (laughs) if you're a shitty person in a movie like this and The Quiet Stranger tells you to stop doing something, it's like you have 30 seconds until the end of your life. So you might as well well not go, oh, yeah, buddy, what are you going to do about it? And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like, Dude, you you need to know what movie you're in. You're not the hero. <laughs> not with those fake teeth. Yeah. And I love how there's this long, tense conversation between Major Jackson and Django doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't even stand up. But when the gun comes out, I think it's when Major Jackson pulls the lever on his rifle. Suddenly Django is the fastest guy in the world and kills like five guys in two seconds. It is... Wonderful. <laughs> we I, we haven't also said that the Django is played by Franco Nero, who uh, is a towering figure in B movies. I think I probably saw it. the first time I saw him was in one of those. He was in a couple of the um, Golden Globus and Enter the not Enter the Ninja, the Ninja movies. There was like a bunch of them. Ninja Domination was one of them. And yeah, he was in, I, he was in two of them. I think. Um, I think he said in an interview when he got that role, he had no idea what a ninja was. <laughs> Not surprised. But I mean, he's like 24 in this. He's like 23 when they cast yeah, him. Probably 24. So insane because- So there's, there's a story about that that I enjoy and it may not be true. Mm-hmm. But that he, the story is that he requested to be made up to look older so that when he- got older in movies people would comment that he never ages <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome no, so but if you look at his early movies he's all he's often made up to look older than he, he is he's so i mean he's an incredibly handsome guy and the 
I'm not sure if all um, spaghetti westerns kind of uh, favor this, but um, this one for sure, for sure, Corbucci definitely has so many extreme close-ups of mm-hmm. people's faces. I mean, a lot of times when you're seeing Django, like that shot that you were talking about when he's sort of ta- exchanging words with Major Jackson is a shot where you're basically, he has his head down, you just see sort of the brim of his hat and then his nose and his mouth moving. And then he sort of looks up, but you're still only seeing between his forehead and his chin. And so much of what you, of what you, of the the sort of the the interest in the performance in Django is that he's just got the he's got that stone cut from steel face and those um, intense eyes. Yeah, those intense, blue eyes are those yeah. blue eyes are incredible. He's just like extremely handsome. He's got great features. And how were they shot this? Like the way that his sort of five o'clock shadow. The light sort of sheens off of it. Looks totally amazing. He's never totally clean. Um, he's never in a hurry, and frequently things are not that difficult for him. And it's amazing how quick he is. One of the moments I really love is after he rescues uh, Maria at the beginning and is going to escort her into town while he's dragging this coffin. Um, one of the clansmen isn't quite fully dead and is crawling in the mud towards Django and starts to raise a gun. Django, without breaking conversation, he doesn't change his posture, he doesn't raise his voice, just moves his wrist slightly and just casually shoots this guy dead. <laughs> Mid-sentence. <laughs> and the guy just drops into the quicksand. And um, my God, it's, I do I do kind of love Chekhov's quicksand there at the beginning. Sure, yeah. I mean, I a movie say, has to have quicksand. I was going to say, this might be one of the best uses of quicksand in a movie I've ever seen for sure the yeah the quicksand that is set up in the beginning for no real relevant reason to that particular scene except to um serve as the way that Django uh has to make a choice later in the film and where he you know has he, his goal his uh coffin full of gold rolls into the quicksand and he tries to save it and well, there's a there's a thematic thing too, right? Which is don't they? He makes several references with Maria about crossing over the bridge. So there's this sort of swamp with quicksand over it, and there's a super rickety looking bridge. And I think that's is where Maria is trying to go to, but once she gets caught, and she wants to escape, she does not want to go back into town. Um, and he said, you know, it's not my time to go over this bridge. And of course, the whole thing is about like it's the trial. The it's the it's the bridge. It's going. It's the thing that's it's going to either suck you under or it's you're going to overcome. You know that bridge looks really dangerous. Yeah. I, it looks kind of like the bridge in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where <laughs> <laughs> when I imagine him even thinking about taking a cart or even dragging the coffin across. All I can think of, one way or another, that gold is going into the quicksand. <laughs> There's no way. But it seems kind of like the the bridge sort of symbolizes giving up the quest for vengeance. Maybe yeah. on the other side of it is a normal life where he could have something else. But he seems unable to sort of give that up. And it seems like he can't even imagine. Like He says, if you come with me, you'll end up dead. Like He can't even imagine a peaceful life at all after that. Um and what I I really kind of love is I spend so much of this movie trying to suss out if Django is a good person or not. I mean, it's easy for me to to root for somebody, you know, 
decimating the KKK. That is that is an easy moral decision. If I'm playing a video game, it's like the the beginning of. Uh, but is he doing it for morally righteous reasons, or is he just doing it to further his own agenda? That's the thing. Is like, is he here to save this town and this saloon, or would he happily burn it all down to kill Major Jackson? And I keep coming back to the fact that. He has an opportunity to leave several times. He could just go. That at the beginning, when he machine guns everyone, he deliberately doesn't shoot Major Jackson because he wants to drag it out further. It's like, I don't want to just shoot you in the street with a bunch of your men. I've killed your army. You're left with like five guys now. That's not enough for me. I am now going to throw in with the Mexican bandits so that I can not only kill all your men, I'm now going to rob you. And if at the end I'm thinking, okay, well, he got his revenge. He not only, you know, he did everything but kill Major Jackson. So, you know, he wants his half of the gold. Does he have any problem with Ugo and the bandits until Ugo betrays him? Because when he first comes in, and those guys first come into town, he talks in a way like he's happy to just hand Maria over to them into ostensibly some kind of like slavery. And he seems like, hey, you know, Ugo, I brought your lady back. You know, she missed you. The kind of way you, you get in a movie that has a scene that reveals somebody's a bad guy all along. And I'm asking myself, did I spend the first half of this movie rooting for another villain? Because it's, and at the end, it's again, if, if this is just about revenge of Major Jackson, why does he give a shit about the gold at all? Does he care that Ugo has it? Does he care that it goes into the quicksand? Um, is Was this always about money and the revenge was an excuse? I think this is part of what makes the movie so compelling for me is that the character is so kind of morally ambiguous. You don't really know what his end goal or motivations are. Um, and... You're, you're compelled to root for him, but at the same time, you're not really sure if he's a good guy. And um, I think one of the strengths of the movie is that he does transform from a solely revenge and greed-motivated person to someone who uh, and, and someone who kind of reluctantly does the right thing but doesn't go out of his way to do it to someone who eventually does try to, like, rescue Maria and it's implied that they, you know, he takes her away from there. Um, I think that's part of a, an interesting character journey, and I think that's what makes the movie compelling. Yeah, he's not he's not just a straight white hat. I think before it escapes from my head, I have to ask both of you. Um, I'm sure you've seen multiple multiple types, but have you, Mike? Did you see just the English dub, or did you watch the Italian with subtitles, or how did you watch it? I saw the English dub. That's the one that's on Tubi right now. But I looked up some clips of the Italian language version because I just wanted to hear what Franco Nero's voice sounded like. And I think his performance is better than the dub, but yeah, I couldn't I find so a full version of it. I think his, his vocal inflections are a lot more interesting. Um, but it's a great movie nonetheless. But, um, I mean, it's a it's a spaghetti western, and my understanding is that these things are about 90% ADR anyways. Well, they are, but have you, have you you've watched it both ways? I've I watched both, it. yeah. Okay, so here is the fascinating thing, Mike. The English dub, which I assume was made for an American audience, very much downplays the language about Jackson's men's being racist, where in the Italian, uh, if you can watch the Italian version and find the subtitles that are 
trans that translate the Italian and not just transcribe the American dub. Um, Django will say things like, you know, he'll uh, when they're in the bar, Jackson and him are sort of talking, and Jackson says, "You brought your coffin with you. That's good. We're gonna bury you in it." And he's like, they mentioned mentioned vultures, and he's just like, "Oh, you're bringing vultures into this. I didn't know we had racist vultures. I thought only you Southern pigs were racist." And they use the girls, the the uh, the sex workers use the word racists to describe them, and they do not use that word at all in the American dub. I think the only thing they do is Nathaniel says something like. Nathaniel says, in reference to Major Jackson's men and the way they feel about the Mexicans, is they think they are inferior, and that's the way that the uh, the the um, so that the English dub codes it, which I guess was probably to soften the language, was a way for it to be able to play in the South mm-hmm. and not be as people to be as disgusted. It's weird though, because I don't know how you can even get around it. You're not softening a thing that is already very hard edged. I mean, when they're they're slowly walking into town to kill Django and he's sort of behind that tree that's sort of on its side in the middle of the road and he's got his coffin and he's getting his machine gun ready these guys are kind of slowly moving towards him they've all got guns out but a couple of these guys with hoods are holding a burning cross so it's <laughs> not it's not a mystery who these guys are or what they represent it's pretty explicit i mean there's one of those things about a lot of pulp is that pulp is lurid and this movie is very lurid and it's it's about the sort of visceral joy you kind of get from nasty things and one of those nasty things is oh my god there are racists who uh, are horsewhipping women and uh, killing people and cutting there's ears that are getting cut off and it feels so good to watch those guys get theirs and the fact that he has the burning cross and they're ready. They they go far beyond you know what you get in in a lot of movies where you want to have racist villains where they're ready to upright crucify him. So I have to imagine that burning cross was where Django was originally supposed to end up in their plan. But it's kind of weird that they would still choose to sort of soften it. Like at this point, who is it that you think are are going to be offended by that extra mile that aren't offended already? They don't already see themselves in in Major Jackson's guys. Well, I, you're you're touching on a um, peculiar element of spaghetti westerns that I en- enjoy. Um, is that it? It adds to me the dubbing in these movies in general adds a kind of a surreal quality to them. Yeah, that um, that you don't find in American westerns, first of all, um, and it's reflective on how the movies were made. And they were made on a sh- small budget with a short production schedule. And they often didn't record sound at all, or if they did record sound, it was just a guide track that was never intended to right, be used. Right. And so all of the sound effects are added later. All of the all of the dialogue, both in English and Italian, are added later. And it was an international cast who largely didn't necessarily all even speak Italian. So you'd have characters, you might have characters in, seen delivering their lines in German or French or Spanish or Italian or English. Um, all just speaking their own native language yeah, and yeah. then being dubbed in all these different languages, usually by other actors. Like, you know, uh, an Italian-speaking actor may not even dub their own dialogue in Italian. Right, right. Um, and so often in some of these movies, a lot of some of the writing was done after the fact and sure. just written to the movements of the mouth rather than being um, beholden to what was written in the script ahead of time. And so you do get these variations in kind of 
the writing in different for different markets. And so it is interesting to compare the the English and Italian language. I mean, and it stand, it stands to reason that they knew that they knew that they would be wanting to do something different. And this is a similar thing with like I guess you they used to call it chopsaki, which I think is probably a terrible way to to think about it like the idea of what's up tiger lily where part of the fun is the fact that you have some kind of original intent for the narrative and then you have whoever is dubbing it might even be doing something totally different and you have no idea because you're just oh it's a bad lip reading of it yeah it's it's a it's an intentional like okay we just have to make a new english script based on this weird hong kong kung fu movie let's just come up with who the characters names are and then let's just pretend like we know what's going on with the story i feel like that's also an element too is where they could have been like well maybe some of these illusions that they have in the dialogue uh are you know italian things that people wouldn't understand we're just going to rewrite it we don't like um i think this it hews pretty close um, to mm-hmm. the words being spoken, but I think you're you're right when you say it's kind of a little bit like watching um, English dubs of anime, where it seems like more of they're trying to match mouth movements than they are trying to like try to get the meaning of it exactly right. Yeah, they're less true to the spirit of it. Yeah, I can kind of imagine too what an atom bomb this would be to an American audience in 1966, and when you remember that this movie came out the same year as the first season of original Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> and it's crazy because you're like, well, what is happening in American film at this time? Well, nothing that looks like this. Um, this must have been. I mean, it's violent to us now. Even the body count is so much higher than even something like Commando, which I had thought for years was the gold standard of movie carnage. <laughs> but there are so many deaths in this movie. I mean, you have to go to something like Star Wars where the Death Star explodes to top this body count. I mean, you, you have like Bonnie and Clyde later, but I think that's 69 or 70. So that's three or four years yeah. later. Than and I think that's released. partially, again, probably a reaction to stuff like this, where if you have stuff like this coming into probably American drive throughs at the time, suddenly the, the old way you used to do things looks kind of quaint. So you're going to have to step it up and, you suddenly have permission to do things in Bonnie and Clyde and the wild bunch that you weren't able to do before. It's also, it changed how we sort of did Westerns because uh, I think still at that time, Westerns were still all over television. I mean, they might've been at the tail end of the kind of Western we see, but the Western that we saw in America was a very different animal than the spaghetti Western. I mean, for one, it was very sentimental and sanitized and, there was a sense of good guys and bad guys that there was this feeling that the the settlers of the American West were, you know, basically good, hardworking people. And they all said hi to their neighbors and their kids were all well behaved and they all went to church and maybe there'd be an evil landowner or cattle rustler or like a bandit gang or something that would come into town. But once they were dealt with the status quo would reassert itself and everyone would basically be good again. Maybe, um, you know, you'd, you'd push it a little bit with a movie like Shane, which was incredibly transformative at the time that said, Hey, maybe there's a moral ambiguity to this world. But for the most part, um, they were the kind of Westerns that blazing saddles was making fun of Yeah, where the, the, that's what makes blazing saddles so fun is I said, well, what if these happy, you know, singing townsfolk were as racist as they were in real life? Um, (laughs) So I think that when you have an Italian crew, tackling an American genre that's about sort of this this self-created American mythology about ourselves. They don't have that sort of preciousness about it. 
that we do that they're like no they're a bunch of racists uh they're monsters they murdered the indigenous people and took their stuff they're probably smelly and dirty and they kill each other and they're probably desensitized to violence so um instead of a word a world of mostly good people with the sort of incursion of bad people it's like a world of monsters and a world of victims and you have a guy that wanders into town who's a nicer monster than most (laughs) well you also look at the context of the italian filmmakers were making these um in an era where they were still processing world war ii Mm -hmm. right and um and a lot of these films are a reaction to fascism and um you know the the history that italian had with mussolini and fascism in world war ii and um, it's for an American audience. It's like a it's a literal depiction of um, racism and fascism in you know the American South, but that's being used by the Italian filmmakers as an allegory for fascism in their own country. Yeah, what's totally fascinating is is uh, if you view Italian cinema from the fifties, basically in the Reconstruction era, which is funny. You can also say that about. Reconstruction as a thing in America is that you have neorealism as a thing, and you just think about movies built on the rubble, right? About the and the movies worth it, lots of cinema is the same in in France and in England and in Poland. It's the same as that. But with the first ten years, you're either retelling stories about the shocking experience of having your society being destroyed by World War II, or just having sort of slice of life moments about what it is like for everyone to pick up the pieces and to still be whole humans at this part. And then now, like with Italian, the sort of this and Italian horror and giallo, you're sort of in the next generation of filmmakers that are just looking to sort of like explore the genres. They, they're no longer want, they're not, they're not making Hollywood musicals. They're not making these tiny little character pieces about that are, you know, cast with the, non-actors to sort of exemplify what being an Italian is. Now they're just trying to explore the sort of the cinema landscape and the way that the, obviously the way that the world responded to was the way Italy threw, threw the genre back at us. Yeah. Yeah. And they, a lot of these movies um, have, you know, either by a byproduct of um, uh, having, you know, making a, a film in a genre that's been existent for 50 years at this point, um, either accidentally or intentionally remixing American Westerns over and over again as they produce the Italian Westerns. And um, one that comes to mind in particular is a Once Upon a Time in the West where they, yeah. where Leone specifically set out to, before he wrote a script, wrote a list of all of the fil- uh, West references he wanted to make to American films and then crafted a script around that. And so you can go through that movie and list hundreds of references to earlier Westerns. Um, I don't know that Corbucci was doing the same thing with Django, but clearly there's elements that are being brought forward and borrowed. And to me, we, we've mentioned Tarantino earlier, and it's hard yeah. for me to talk about these movies without mentioning Tarantino. And it, It's impossible when you hear the opening song and you're just yeah. like, oh, well, Django Unchained. I remember um, this song. But I, it draws a, a parallel to me to what Tarantino has done with his movies in particular starting with Kill Bill and Onward where the movies themselves could almost be re-edited from pieces of other films right, and right. be just as coherent because they're just a series of 
uh, one shot after another that's just pulled directly from some earlier movie and remixed into this whole new thing um, that is you know unique and and amazing in its own right, but it's drawing so much from you know film past. It's 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 interesting to me that that's something that they were doing that here in the '60s in a whole different context, right? Yeah, it's it's fascinating to to see this movie and you see immediately all the things that it inspired. This was the first time that I had seen Django. I think I'd only seen the Dollars trilogy as far as spaghetti westerns have gone before, the ones with Clint Eastwood, and. This one really feels like I'm at the beginning of something. Like I can see all of the derivative works that I'd already seen before. It kind of reminded me of the first time that I saw The Graduate. Hmm. I saw The Graduate after I saw Wayne's World 2. <laughs> and it was a strange experience because when you see all of these things that either spoof or do a pastiche of something before you see the original article, um, watching the original article again becomes interesting because it sort of snaps these two memories together and the experience is suddenly like watching two movies concurrently that I'm both watching um, the movie that's in front of me, but all of those other movies are sort of shooting to the front of my, my brain, like the end of the usual suspects where all the pieces mm -hmm. are snapping together and suddenly I get got all the whole of the board that's laid out in front of you <laughs> yeah. that you're seeing like all the references. Yeah. Suddenly I get like a ton of jokes from all these movies. I understand things from Quentin Tarantino. There's a Simpsons joke I get suddenly. There's all this stuff that suddenly makes sense. So it's like this is really interesting experience. And I think it's interesting to see how much of what at the time was probably considered disposable junk media has planted seeds that have made us look back and go, no, that was actually really good. That, you know, and that wasn't just a diversion for an hour or so. That was actually a really cool movie. And there's something of real value to pull from it. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the sort of what we were talking about when we talked about the first Terminator movie where in its time, um, it was sort of critically panned and being like, well, you know, this is a, there's some inventiveness here, but it's just sort of trash. It's just sort of trash cinema. I'm sure that was exactly the same response to this, which is people thought, well, this is just exploitative, violent trash, and you're going to forget about it. Yeah, it's it's amazing how you look back on how many movies or critics of the time were just honestly horrified. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fainting couch kind of stuff that you see. And I'm just kind of like, oh, come on, guys. You really have no idea what's I mean, coming in I, cinema. I, this, But this movie could have been – maybe it's because we're now in the 21st century and because they make all sorts of wacky shit in a movie. Like um, the fact that there is no nudity in this movie is something that's interesting because I would have imagined, oh, well, I mean, it's a, European movies that normally don't give a shit as much about, about nudity. So I was thinking, well, they have a, a scene where Django is trying to pr provide a distraction. And so he takes uh, asks one of the prostitutes to come with her, stands her in front of a window and has her undress. And she undresses, but she doesn't undress in a way that a woman would undress in an American movie. She has movie. 17 layers of yeah. clothes on. She's, so it takes she's her 10 minutes to She's eventually still in a girdle. And, yeah, she never she's goes still there. That. Um, That's and, one of the handy things about women wearing that much clothes back then <laughs> is it gave him more time to drag <laughs> that coffin around. But and also like the um uh the th prostitutes fighting in the mud which 
I have to imagine the only reason for that scene to exist was just like the prurient thing about seeing women mud wrestle. Because what else are we trying? There's there's some dissension in between the uh, the prostitutes that work I mean, there, and you, then you get a little bit of body horror. You get women <laughs> fighting. You get you get all sorts of stuff. You get violence against women. You got ears getting cut off. Um, it, it just you get to... you get that fucking banging theme song. Jesus, holy shit, that song is amazing. Was his name Rock? Rocky, what's the name of the, the singer? Rocky something something. I, I forget uh, about it. Oh, I can't remember either. I think I think Rocky is a pseud- is a, a pseudonym. I oh, think yeah. it's Roberto's. Um, His name's Enzo or something. Robert, uh, Roberto. It's uh, Luis Bakalov did the score. The uh, that what's great about that, and I noticed it only the second time through, is that um, that song provides a leitmotif for Django for the entire movie, and there's like two or three different sort of themes that recur throughout the movie. And that phrase, which is basically saying Django, right? It's a two notes of a musical phrase that are saying the two syllables of his name appear over and over and over and over again in the score. And I was like, it's brilliant. They, they, had the simplest thing they want they want you to remember two notes mm-hmm. yeah that's all they want you to remember two notes and they want you to associate it with him being fucking a b- badass who's just walking into town i just want to say how much i also love the the bit of music this was also used in django unchained and also kind of recontextualized in django unchained where it was used heroically but here it's evil music oh yeah the it's trumpet the trumpet theme that they use for major jackson and i think my favorite uses of it is when he's allowing that mexican peasant to run farther and farther away before he gets that shot and when that guy drops dead it goes dun, 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 dun. it's it's i absolutely love it dun 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 <laughs> dun, 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 dun and it's just this kind of brassy trumpet um and every time he fucking enters a scene you know it's a big deal it's oh king racist is here um <laughs> it's like this guy's gonna fuck shit up and i just fucking love it um I could have them play a version of that song over and over again, and they do. And I'm like, oh, thank God it's back. <laughs> it's, it's practically my favorite character. Um, but it's it's wonderful. And um, I get listening to this music why Quentin Tarantino so shamelessly licensed it and put it in his own movie, because you don't need to write a version of that if you can just use it. Um, it's kind, He kind of does to that music – what he did to um, John Travolta, which is like, hey, there's this really cool thing that you guys have stopped using. You just got to dust it off and put it in a movie and it's awesome. Um, it's it's kind of fun. In a lot of ways, it just shows you what a, a remix artist he really is. So Django um, was an incredibly popular movie in Europe um, and spawned something like 30 unofficial sequels. Oh, right, right. And and then dozens of other movies were retitled Django that had nothing to do with Django whatsoever. Almost none of these were official. There's one movie that was developed as a sequel that was produced that ended up starring Terrence Hill um, that was uh, a semi-official sequel. And then there was some other sequel made in the middle of the 80s that was a reaction to Rambo that I haven't seen that, <laughs> by all accounts is pretty terrible. So I haven't seen that one. Um, but the, the common thing to do was to title your movie Django just to create more interest in it. And so it's, it's really fascinating to me uh, that um, not only did um, Tarantino borrow a ton of stuff from Italian Westerns and a ton of stuff from Corbucci in particular, 
he borrowed the title and the theme from Django and named his character Django and even brought um, Franco Nero back to make a cameo in Django Unchained. But really, that movie has nothing to do with the character of no, Django. Just like and every nothing, other Django movie. And there's no other <laughs> connection to the plot of Django, um, a, you know, apart from the connection with gunning down racists. Um, that so really, he's do he was he's paying tribute to the whole genre by calling his movie Django, not just to the you know, this one particular movie. Um, does do either of you know if? The the sort of etym- etymological root of the name Django is related to the word gin or genie, because I was I was it probably isn't there probably is no I don't di- know. direct reference to the DJ. I know, I know where thing. the name Django comes from, hmm. which is um, it's named after uh, Django Reinhardt. Oh, that's what like I a, thought. Yeah, um, guitar player, I think Spanish guitar player, um, who had his hand burned badly in an accident and. A, you know, a year or two later, year, came back even stronger after healing his hand, which is, you know, touches on an element of this plot we haven't even gotten to yet. No. Oh, my the God. The most brutal violent. mutilation of Django's <laughs> hands. Oh, God. That is, that is, that is the goriest part of this movie. And it is, oh, it, so we should just talk about it. Yeah. Um, he gets caught uh, trying to rob, um, Hugo. The Mexican bandits. He escapes. Uh, he escapes with the gold, and then he's caught uh, as he's he's slowed down as the gold is drops into the um, the quicksand and loses it, and then he the bandits catch up to him, and because he has a history with the leader of the bandits and having uh, helped him escape from prison is the backstory there. Uh, they don't kill him, but they do cripple him, and they beat him up. And they smash his hands with rifle, you know, the butts of their rifles, and the horses trample all over his hands, <laughs> and, and he ends up with these mangled, ha- bandaged, like bloody stumps that he's unable to use. <laughs> it looks like he's wearing mittens made out of hamburger. <laughs> it is disgusting. It is just nothing but crushed meat and probably bone fragments and he has to go into the climax of this movie with these like meat flippers <laughs> and it is i just love how audacious it is in that respect because you know that an american movie would just have them wrap it in white bandages and have them not use it but of course because this has to be the next level they have to be like disgusting like road rash hands you know they need you to know that he's never going to tie his shoes ever again <laughs> yeah. and i mean his hands are fucked <laughs> that there's no he's never going to fire a gun so he has to come up with a plan to kill major jackson in the cemetery i believe it's at his girlfriend or wife's grave the person that he's avenging and he's sort of kneeling against this headstone as Major Jackson and his men come in. And he uses his teeth to pull the trigger guard I off know, of his revolver. awesome. And it, everything looks so fucking painful. The scene where he's just trying to manipulate this gun between these two bloody flipper hands, touching anything. Trying leaves... to grab it with his elbows <laughs> oh! and just trying to prop it up. And, he keep, and it keeps falling off and it just drags it out. Because it's like, how is he even going to be able to pick the gun up and hold it here? He's just getting dirt in the wounds. And everything looks like it fucking hurts. Everything hurts. And it's just like, everything he touches leaves blood on it. And oh, he props the gun into this sort of metal ornamentation on the headstone. Well, and it, you mentioned the blood. And it's it's not the dark red color of blood that, you know, blood is actually colored. It's the same bright red color as the hoods and the sashes that they're wearing. And yeah. 
and it's a, like a like a spot color in a black and white printing or something. It's so iconically um, red, bright red, the same red as every other red in the frame. Um, that really, it really jumps out. It's like the cleanest, cleanest and only color in the movie. Mm. Everything else is this are shades of brown. Mm-hmm. Oh God, and it. Oh, and I think this is another one of those elements of the spaghetti western. This is kind of a Conan the Barbarian moment of, you know, you can crucify me, but I'm going to pull myself down off of it. I'm going to I'm my real strength is overcoming tremendous pain. It's a recurring thing throughout spaghetti westerns where the hero, you know, hits the you know, in plots in, you know, general, the, the hero's journey, he's at his lowest point just before the finale. But in spaghetti westerns, that lowest point is often the character having that absolute living shit beaten out of him <laughs> just like mutilation this is this goes into body horror what happens to his hands and you don't see them ever get bandaged up oh you're okay you're in a bed and, and like no it's there's it's bad there's a moment um the movie the characters in the movie delight in killing and mutilation and when general hugo chops the guy's ear off all of the bandits are laughing and shouting and guffawing and cheering when he's shot in the when the priest is shot in the back and falls in the mud, and when Jackson is uh, using the Mexican peasants to shoot at for sport, all of his you know buddies are smiling and cheering and laughing. And what really strikes me is that in the scene where Django is uh, trampled and mutilated and it gets to a point where it pans across all of these Mexican bandits and they just have looks of horror on their face. Yeah. And it's gotten so bad that even the despicable villainous characters in this movie are shocked and appalled. It's like the and movie what, knows it's gone and, too far. And, and that, that scene where his hands are trampled, you know, it's, uh, it, it kind of looks corny when, you know, these obviously rubber hands are being stepped on by horses and you've got a long camera angle and Nero is probably 20 yards further you right, know, right. away and in no danger. What really sells it is the look on all of their faces and then just just Hugo has a bit of a grin. Yeah. Everybody else is just like, well, this is, maybe he's going too far here. <laughs> it's, this is, it's, you're, everyone's like, wait, who is this guy? Do I really want this guy to run Mexico? But it's, it's so fucking crazy, but he actually carries Maria back to town, holding the sort of bloody flippers underneath her as he sort of carries her back. And I'm just like, it's another one of those elements of this guy just overcoming this insane threshold of pain to to get his revenge, that he hates these guys that much. Um, and what I, what I really love is that even at the end, what he ultimately does, removes the trigger guard, props it against the headstone. So to fire the gun, he has to push it into the headstone while fanning the hammer of the gun with his other hand. And my God, I can only imagine how fucking painful doing that is. And, oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It is just, it is some dark shit. Um, <laughs> well, and it's it's convenient that Jackson shows up with five other men, so he only needs the six bullets to take out all five of them. I I, I the second rewatch, not, I, that, not that, sorry, not that there was any limit to the number of bullets that could be at a gun, of at course. any other point in the oh, movie. Oh no, of but course for not. The finale had has to it has to line up, it has to add up because uh, he can't possibly reload, right? Yeah. Um, I was it so I I think probably for a lot of people who haven't seen a lot of spaghetti westerns. 
you have fixed in your head the idea that these are done on the cheap. And so you'd be like, oh, well, they have these sort of fly-by-night guerrilla-style productions that are done without sound, so things are really quick. Um, I think the cinematography, the Enzo, I am not can't remember what his last name was. Barboni, I think. Yeah, Enzo Barboni is the cinematographer. Um, and I was like, oh, it's not just them filming on a back lot. Um, of something here it's not like that there is an artistry like there's a scene when maria um maria first comes back to the brothel and goes up to the room and jango sort of insinuated himself to basically let her go and rest and you see her uh, a cut to a shot of her looking at herself in the mirror and there's sort of like a kind of a lewd statue and there's a crack in the mirror that she's sort of looking at herself her that this entire scene sort of introducing her and you getting the realization that she was from here is a shot that is not only a dolly shot and a panning shot and then a tracking shot up to the window and it's all it's like a it's like a Spielberg wonder this because it's it is probably four different discrete shots that is tied into one that is not only sort of trying to um uh, reflect her state of mind but also giving you uh, the audience information without someone telling us mm-hmm. you know the fact that this movie has a lot of these where there's there's some incredible artistry, there's some incredible craft on display that I think a lot of people will just overlook because of the fact that, oh, this is a cheap spaghetti Western and it's really just all about the guys gunning each other down. But no, I mean, there's some insane artistry at, at, at work here. And um, I maybe think that the whole that this is the kind of thing that can help a malign genre you can send this over to, you know, send this DVD to someone's house and be like, look at this shit, you know, like this is amazing. And it it's, you could think that it could be trash, but there's so much more to it. So I guess we may have just answered the final question. Is Django worth your time? Absolutely. Put <laughs> <laughs> it simply as that. Yeah, I, I think it is, um, I, I, I don't know that Django is solely responsible for a sea change in filmmaking the way that a movie like 2001 is. Um, but it is a, a really good shining uh, example of the sort of filmmaking that was the Spaghetti Western. And that genre or movement of filmmaking, that kind of window in time, is uh, at a pivotal moment in filmmaking and it and it is really interesting for me at least to kind of look at those movies as a whole collective body of work from different filmmakers and the influence that that genre had on filmmaking not just westerns going forward and as you mentioned the 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 way that you can kind of see references to this style of filmmaking you know throughout the 70s and 80s and going going on since then I th- I think that Django in particular is a really entertaining, ver- you know, way to get into that genre or to hoop, to just to enjoy a piece of it that holds up really well. Yeah, for, modern, for, and, for a modern audience. And that's the thing that I was going to say is because of the things that we talked about at the very beginning that you said is that it actually is really well streamlined. There is a way that um, there's a way that watching a movie that was made in the mid 20th century. Um, where pacing was a lot different than it was now, where sort of our narrative sensibilities are totally different. Um, it may be hard for kids in their 20s to be watching a movie that was made in the 40s because of all the jibber-jabber, you know. The thing about this movie is, is that it's it's 
all it's about 60% of it is visual storytelling. There's an amazing amount that you are told simply by what's shown to you and not what people people are explaining and the fact that it's exciting and that there are moments that really do surprise you where you're just like my wife watched it with me for the first time last night when the gatling gun came out she gasped. So like that was that'll say something is like oh my god I could, I couldn't have guessed that's what was going to be in the box, you know. Um it is such a fun movie there may be moments that people might be like well it might drag a little bit when he's dragging the coffin around it is still so fun it's like it is a whip quick 90 minute movie that i think everyone's gonna hear the song at the end and they're gonna be like fuck yes i i i absolutely agree i think this movie feels really special because it i mentioned this before like when you see a movie that you've seen homages of and you go back to the source material, there's that, that concurrent feeling of watching two movies at once. Um, I mentioned the graduate, but it also reminds me of the first time I saw enter the dragon. The first time I saw Goldfinger, where I'm seeing something that has been referenced in homage, not only by people by like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, but something that I don't think I've ever really seen this pure a version of of the of the pastiches i've seen since and it more than lives up to the derivative works like you mentioned before a lot of movies like this can be trash that oftentimes a movie like this has sort of quickly thrown together um a pulpy foreign film or, or like a direct vhs movie from like the 80s oftentimes they're notorious for one amazing scene and that's it and the rest of the movie, aside from maybe one or two moments, aren't something you can rewatch. But I watched this twice in the last week, and it moved quickly both times. Even when I knew what was in the coffin, even when I knew that he was about to get his hands uh, trampled, even when I knew what the big surprise in this next scene was going to be, it still held up. I totally get why Tarantino clearly loves this movie and has lifted shamelessly so much from it. I love the fact that he pulled the title character's name and the theme song. And I like the ear thing in Reservoir Dogs has to be. Oh, it has to be direct (laughs) influenced by this. Yeah. And and that was something where when when Reservoir Dogs came out, everyone was talking about, you know, that the ear scene. And I've never heard anybody reference Django in relation to like it was such a shocking thing. In what in ninety one or ninety two when that movie came out, but it had been done years earlier, and was clearly clearly a reference to to this. Oh, it's great! And even the opening credits font. I, I don't think we've talked about that at all. There's sort of this rough looking font with a thick black background, bright red. It's that same bright red that just sears into your eyes. And I don't know what else to call that font other than like Times New Grindhouse. <laughs> but I've seen that thing emulated so many times since and it's so good to see it in something where it's not an homage it's just what they made mm-hmm. um i i mean this movie has left a stamp on so many things and yet it doesn't feel like i've seen it before because a lot of times you can be disappointed by going back to the source material because it's not special anymore because it was too successful at uh, inspiring too many people to copy it. But no, it still holds up really well. And honestly, uh, if you're going to want to make me happy, a violent revenge film where a guy guns down 
at this point, like dozens of racists in the middle of the street. It, this is like a pulpy masterpiece, and I, <laughs> I adored it so much. So I want to thank you guys again for joining me in this conversation. Michael Warbington, camp director and president of Camp Quest Northwest. Mike, thank you for joining us for this conversation. It's great to be here. I love talking about these movies. And uh, if people wanted to find out more about what you're doing or they want to learn more about Camp Quest, where can they go? They can go to uh, campquestnorthwest.org. Right now we are looking for volunteers for our July camp session at Camp Waskowitz and our August camp session at Camp Kirby. We're looking for volunteers for both sessions. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mike. And a big special thank you to our episode sponsors. So thank you to Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Zuri Russell, Steel Wolf, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kalen, Matt Weber, and Hans Twite. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, you want to join that illustrious crew, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians and click the big green button on there. Or just go to um, radio versus the Martians.com, please. Uh, and until then, we will catch you guys next month. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Careful, mister. From the way you talk, I get the idea you want to be helped into that box you're lugging around. Could be. You're a Yankee, ain't you? I fought for the North. We don't take much to folks who fought for the North. Get the idea? Yeah, I get the idea. Yeah. What the hell are we worrying about him for? Let's finish the girl off. A woman shouldn't be treated in that way. What's that you said? It's not important. And if I bothered you, will you accept my apology?